We're coming into the fall feasts. Those of you who have been around for a while know that Yeshua fulfilled the spring feasts and Shavuot at his first coming. He was sacrificed on Passover. He rose on first fruits. The Holy Spirit was sent to us on Shavuot, which then leaves us the fall feasts. And since he's done everything that he did on a feast, we will assume that he's going to continue that pattern. So what we have coming up is the Feast of Trumpets, Yom Teruah, and then we have after that Yom Kippur, and then after that we have Sukkot. If the pattern holds true, which I have every expectation that it will, the Feast of Trumpets is the announcement of the coming of the King. Those of you who have studied Revelation, or at least have studied it with me, recognize that he comes on the seventh trumpet. And, of course, we have the pattern that was established at Jericho with the seventh trumpet. The Israelites came into the land and began their conquest. So I expect that the king will come at the seventh trumpet, and that will be on Yom Teruah. If I'm wrong, it's the way it goes. And those who have been around for a while recognize that the Feast of Trumpets is the one where no one knows the day or the hour. Because... We don't know when the month starts until we actually see the moon. And those of you who have been around this for a while recognize that that moon can vary by a day one way or the other. So nobody actually knows when the month starts until the month starts. That's the coming of the king. Then we have the come to Jesus meeting. And that is Yom Kippur. And that's the day of atonement where we come and get our sins squared away and then the next thing is he tabernacles with us and that's of course Sukkot. Now what I'm going to talk to you about here is partially rabbinic but I think it's really wise. We are now about halfway through the month of Elul and the way it works out assuming that Elul is 30 days which again we don't know because we don't know when we'll see the moon what we have is 40 days to Yom Kippur and there's stuff that you should be doing during this time and that's what I want to talk to you about now when the king comes back he's going to be initially doing two things he is going to be looking at the state of his kingdom so when a king comes back he wants to go on inspect and find out how things are going in his kingdom not that God doesn't know but that's one of the things he'll be doing You've got a part to play in his kingdom. And so I want to talk to you about that. The second thing that he's going to do as he comes back as the shepherd is he is going to want to find out the condition of his individual sheep. So you've got two things going on, and you should be getting ready for both of those events. And the way the rabbis describe this is there's a period between the first of Tishri, Yom Teruah, and Yom Kippur, which they call the Days of Awe. Obviously, that's going to start in about two weeks. And the way they describe it is in heaven, the books are open. And you then have a 10-day period while the books are inspected. And at the end of that 10-day period at Yom Kippur, the books are closed. And the way they describe it, it's like an investment banker is reviewing his investments. So he opens the books on... Rosh Hashanah, and he examines his investments, and then he makes his decisions, and those books are closed on Yom Kippur. 
the metaphor here is God has invested resources in you over this past year. So what he's going to want to do is he's going to want to look at what you have done with his investments. And oh, by the way, that also works in a New Testament sense because you have the parable of the talents where the master has gone away, he's invested talents with his servants, and he comes back and he wants to see, well, what did you do with the stuff I invested with you? And the other part of that is, what am I going to invest in you next year? Assuming Yeshua doesn't come back this Rosh Hashanah, which he certainly could. So assuming that that doesn't happen and we have another year here before he comes, the question is, I want to see what you did with what I invested in you this past year, and then I'll make a decision on what I'm going to invest with you for the coming year. So that's the metaphor that the rabbis have come up with, and I like it a lot. So as you're working your way toward Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets, you should be doing some stuff. And what I'll suggest you should be doing is you should be reflecting back over this year that you have just come through. And you ought to be thinking, what have I done with the resources that God has invested in me this past year? Where have I done well? Where have I not done so well? The second thing you ought to be doing is you ought to be thinking about a proposal. In this investment banker metaphor that I've laid out before you, one of the things that happens during the days of awe is you go before the heavenly accountant, if you will, God, and you say, all right, this is what I want to do next year. And these are the resources that I'm going to need to make that happen. In that sense, you're coming up with a business proposal. I mean, I'm talking in business terms. Understand this is spiritual and there's a whole bunch of other stuff going on. I don't mean to make it sound mechanical. It's not. And I don't mean to make it sound entirely business. It really isn't. But the metaphor kind of works because it gives you a focus during this time as you're working your way toward the days of all. So what I'm suggesting to you is that you ought to be thinking about what it is you want for resources next year and what you plan to do with those resources. So you can lay that before God and say, this is what I did last year, this is where I did well, this is where I didn't do so well, this is what I want to do next, and these are the resources I need. I find that it's a really good exercise to focus you as you're going into the fall feasts. Now, the other thing that you're going to want to do is three things. So thing one, reflect on the past year. Thing two, develop a plan for next year. And then thing three is teshuva, repentance. All of us have fallen short of what we hope to have done this past year. We just have. We have fallen short both in a kingdom sense and in a personal sense. The, the reason is called the Day of Atonement because as you go up to that day, what you want to do is you want to reflect back on the things that you have not done as well as you had hoped, on the people whose relationships are not what you hoped they would be, and you want to go out during this time and you want to make atonement. You want to make things right as best you can so that you can go into the next year with a clean slate. You don't want to carry a whole bunch of baggage from this past year into the next year. And that's what teshuva, or repentance, is designed to do. One other thing before I go into repentance. I've talked before about cyclical time and linear time. And 
Most of our lives, we live in cyclical time. We have the pattern of Shabbat. My entire life revolves around a seven-day cycle. So I stand here and teach or preach or whatever I do on Shabbat. And then Sunday, I actually sort of collapse. And then Monday, I start getting ready for Bible study. And then as I go through the week, I am getting ready to be here on Shabbat again. So my entire existence is cyclical, and it runs on a seven-day cycle. And of course, we have the cycle of the new moon that runs on basically a 30-day cycle. And then we have the cycle of the year, where we have our seven feasts. And my entire life is consumed in these cycles. Once a year, it is really good to pop your head up out of the cycle and recognize that these cycles are leading somewhere. There is a progression that should be happening. And of course we see that, for example, in Revelation and so forth, where God gives us this vision of the fact that this whole thing is progressing toward an end. And so what this period between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur gives you is this opportunity to sort of stop I need to get out of the cycle here for a minute and I need to see where we are in linear time as opposed to where we are in cyclical time. And this is a good time of the year to reflect on that. The way one of the rabbis described it, and I like this metaphor. So you're walking along in the dark and you've been walking through the woods and you've been walking for a while. You're headed in what you think is the right direction, but you haven't really checked your bearings in a while. And then all of a sudden there's this flash of lightning and you can see all the countryside around you and you can look around and say, ah, that's where I'm supposed to be going. And you can adjust your course. So this time of the year is like that flash of lightning where you come up out of your cyclical existence and you look around and you get a vision of where it is you are going both in a kingdom sense and in a personal sense. So as you're going through the days of awe, you want to be alert for that flash of, ah, my direction has been subtly wrong, or my direction is fine, whichever it happens to be, and I need to make an adjustment or not, or maybe a confirmation. We're going in the right direction, everything's okay. Or it may be, whoops, I'm not headed quite in the right direction, I need to make an adjustment. But this time of year is a time for that kind of reflection. So you ought to be doing lots of stuff during this time, in addition to all the stuff you're doing, getting ready for winter and so forth. So let's talk about teshuva, repentance. And as I said earlier, there is two aspects of this. One is getting right with your neighbor, and the other is getting right with God. They're both called teshuva. Rabbis say, and I agree, that God will not forgive you for something your neighbor should forgive you for. If you have wronged your neighbor in some way, it doesn't do any good to go to God and ask for forgiveness. What you have to do is go to your neighbor and ask him for forgiveness and as best you can make that right. And Yeshua says the same thing, by the way. He says if you're going to do a sacrifice and you remember that your neighbor has something against you, leave your sacrifice and go back and make it right with your neighbor and then you can come and offer your sacrifice with a clean heart. It doesn't do any good to beg for forgiveness for something that you've done to somebody else because that's not God's business. Business is horizontal, not vertical. 
Once you've got that straight, then you can do the vertical forgiveness. So, what are the steps of teshuva, repentance? And I'm going to give it to you two ways, and both of them are correct, but they give you a slightly different perspective. If you go to, I forgot, I, I get Mammonides and Nachmanides confused. I, I never can keep the two of them straight. One of them said this in his guide for the perplexed. I think that's Mammonides. First thing you have to do is you have to speak out what the sin is. You've got to acknowledge it. You've got to say, I did this or didn't do this, whichever the case may be. And then confess to God or confess to your neighbor that I've done wrong and then resolve not to do it again. The rabbinic take on this, which is absolutely in line with the Christian take, I mean, there's no difference here. It's just the rabbis have written it one way. What happens when you've made atonement for what you've done, you resolve not to do it again, at that point, you are a different person. You are no longer a murderer, a robber, an adulterer, you know, whatever it is that your particular sin is, you're not that anymore. Therefore, from the heavenly perspective, it doesn't make any sense to punish you for that because you are not the person anymore that committed it. So the idea when you do teshuva is you change. You change who you are. You are no longer this kind of a sinner. And when you are no longer that kind of a sinner, then it doesn't make any sense to punish the new you because it isn't the new you that did that. And Christianity is your sins are washed away and are remembered no more. Same concept. Slightly different way of saying it, but it's basically the same concept. Now I'm going to give you the same thing in a slightly different way. And this is with respect to time. We are beings that live in the past, present, and future. We live in all three of those times simultaneously. I remember what I did yesterday. And my memory is an extremely important component of my faith. Because if I don't remember what God has done for me, then I have no ability to understand what he's going to do for me in the future. So memory is extremely important, and that's living in the past. The present. I'm standing here right now in the present. And the only time that I have to do anything is right now as I am standing here. I can't do anything in the past, because what's done in the past is done. I cannot yet do anything in the future, because the future is not here. So the only thing I have is the present. And then I anticipate the future. I make plans. I have some idea. I live in cyclical time. I know what the week is going to be like, more or less. And so I'm anticipating the future. It's the same thing with repentance. So in the past... What I'm going to do is remember my sin and regret that I did it. Not regret that I got caught, regret that I did it. Different kind of regret. I'm going to regret that I did what I did. That's the past. In the present, I'm going to repair the damage I've done as best I can. So I'm going to go to my neighbor who I've wronged or whatever, and I'm going to do whatever I can and what's necessary to repair that. That's the present. And then in the future, I'm going to resolve not to do it again. Look at it either way. It works both ways, past, present, or future. Or, as the rabbis say, speak, confess, and resolve. But in either case, this is a time to get things right. Now, when you go to your neighbor and confess what you've done and ask for forgiveness, 
Make sure that forgiveness is what you come away with. One of the things that we do in this culture is, oh, that's no big deal. Just forget it. That's not forgiveness. What you want to say is, I have wronged you in whatever way this is. Will you please forgive me? And if they say, oh, that's all right. No, 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 no. no. Please, will you forgive me? What I want here is forgiveness if you will give it. Now, it's entirely possible that the answer may be what you've done is unforgivable. No, I won't forgive you. And that's sad because at that point, the problem becomes the one who is wronged and it is no longer yours. You have done what God says you should do. You have gone, you have asked for forgiveness, you have done whatever is possible to make it right. You may not be able to fix it, but you've done whatever you can. And at that point, if the victim will not forgive you, then the victim is the one that's living in prison. You no longer are. Whereas until you ask for forgiveness, both of you are sort of in prison. Because you're dealing with guilt, they're dealing with anger and resentment, and forgiveness or teshuva should clear that. But you, as the one who is the perpetrator, are the one who should go forward and say, I want to be forgiven. If forgiveness is extended, then it's clear. If forgiveness is not extended, it's no longer your problem. One of the other things is, the most worthless thing in the world is, if I have done anything to offend anybody here, please forgive me. That's a waste of bandwidth. What I will say is, if any of you has anything against me, please come and tell me so that I can ask for your forgiveness. I don't know that I have anything against anybody or anybody has anything against me, but it's entirely possible. I deal with lots of people. I don't remember anything right now, but if you have something that's been sticking in your craw with me, please come and tell me so we can get it cleared. That is not the same thing as saying, if I've done anything to you, please forgive me. As I say, that's a waste of time. I'm asking any of you who does, specifically, I'm giving you permission, please come and tell me so that I can make it right. And same with anybody else here. So once you've made things right with your neighbor, then you are in a position to go before God. Remember Yeshua, you're going with your sacrifice and you remember your neighbor has something against you. Notice how I said that. Your neighbor has something against you, not you have something against your neighbor. But your neighbor has something against you. Leave your sacrifice, go make it right, and then you can come into the temple and sacrifice with a clean heart. So, that's the stage we are at now once you've cleared things with your neighbor. You've got this ten days of awe during which you examine yourself and you come before God and you ask for forgiveness for anything that has come to mind. Now, sort of two things about this, and I'll give it to you Christian and I'll give it to you Jewish. They're basically the same thing, but again, they say them differently. In Christian, the blood of Messiah covers all sins. So as soon as you confess your sin and ask for forgiveness, you have it. True, absolutely true, no problem. The way a Jew would say the same thing is God has created you for a purpose. And one of the big purposes that God has created you for is so that he will not be alone. God has determined that he is not going to be alone. And so he's God, and I'm figuring he's able to make that work. God does not want to be alone. What God wants to be is in fellowship with you. So if you come before God 
you humble yourself and you confess your sins, and I'll say this, don't anybody take offense, it is in God's interest to forgive you. In other words, he wants to forgive you. So in a Jewish sense, God wants to forgive you so that he can be in fellowship with you. In a Christian sense, God sent his son so his blood would cover your sins so he could be in fellowship with you. Same thing. The only thing the Jews don't get is the Messiah part. But it's the same concept. God wants you in his kingdom. He wants to be in fellowship with you. So when you come before him and confess your sins, he is going to forgive you. Now, why would you not do that? Several reasons people don't. One is pride. And that's especially horizontal. If I have wronged you, and I have to go and confess that I have wronged you and ask for forgiveness, that means I have to humble myself in your presence, and my pride just sort of wells up when that happens, and I really don't want to do that. So that's sort of thing one. You need to get your pride out of the way so you can get things cleaned up. The second reason that people don't do it is ignorance. They just don't recognize what's available to them. And that's, by the way, where you should be telling people the gospel. Because the primary message of the gospel is you have this forgiveness available to you. You are able to get yourself in a right relationship with God. God wants you in right relationship with Him. He will forgive you. So it's our job to overcome ignorance in other people and explain to them what's available to them. And the third reason that I can think of why somebody wouldn't do that is what I would call a sense of worthlessness. I have just screwed up so badly that I cannot imagine that I could ever be forgiven for what I've done. You know, this sense of shame and worthlessness and whatever you want to call it, the idea that nobody could ever forgive me for what I just did. And my answer to that is, what makes you so special? Again, that's pride. And that's pride on the negative side instead of pride on the positive side. So pride on the positive side is not going to humble myself before him. That's positive pride. Negative pride is, I am so worthless that I couldn't ever be forgiven. Two sides of the same coin. It's both a focus on you. Pride can either be positive or negative. It doesn't have to be exalting yourself. It can also be abasing yourself. They're both pride. And as I say, what makes you so special? What is it that you could possibly have done that God couldn't forgive? The answer that's nothing. So, you got stuff to do. At this point, you no longer have 40 days. You've probably got about 25 days. So if you haven't made a start, this is a really good day to start. If you have made a start, keep moving because the king is coming. Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.